0: How Come on, let me see your hands. Hopefully you would have known it's Mother's Day, for goodness sake. Um, how many would have said Pentecost Sunday? One? I knew what the sermon was. Yeah, Peter knew what the sermon was, so he would have said it. <laughs> he got advanced notice. You know, we, we would not have known that on the calendar, on the Christian calendar, because when you get into a Jewish calendar, you get into one that's run through a monthly cycle that's a little bit different. But on the Christian calendar, in the same way in which Christmas is questionable as to whether it really happened on that day or not, today would be Pentecost Sunday. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost as a day on the calendar, you know what, it doesn't get major press, does it? I mean, you, you got Christmas, kind of the Super Bowl, the Hallmark Super Bowl, all the, the fanfare You know, the Incarnation, we make a big deal out of that. You know, theologically, it's questionable as to whether or not Easter shouldn't be the Super Bowl of all holidays. Well, we appreciate Easter couldn't happen without the Incarnation, so we can ball some of that stuff together, right? But, you know, for some reason, we get to Pentecost, and Pentecost sort of falls into the category along with, like, Groundhog Day, You know, I'm not quite sure when that happens, but we know it does happen. It's less important than Valentine's Day. I mean, we all know when Valentine's Day is, or the 4th of July. Something really significant happened on the 4th of July, and we know when that is. But Pentecost Sunday, I I don't even know when that is. Unfortunately, I think that characterizes how we treat what Pentecost Sunday reflects. And I've got to be honest with you in this, and although I, I, I've struggled and wrestled with this for many years now, and i have always asking the staff for input in terms of our balance of bringing the elements of the Spirit. But when I went to title this thing in my computer, typically on holidays, whether it's Easter or Christmas, I'll put Easter 2007 message, Easter 2008. I don't have a Pentecost 2000 anything. I've never preached a Pentecost message on Pentecost. Now, I've preached it in different settings, but never on Pentecost Sunday. So I thought it was very important for us, because of the importance we see in the Word, that we draw our attention to Pentecost on Pentecost Sunday. And one of the things that really tweaked me, and I put it as a headline in your outline there, disoriented disciples. What piqued me to want to do this message was back on Easter, when I did the message called, We Had Hoped, But For What? And we looked at the disciples and the frame of mind that they were in from the Resurrection Sunday for weeks after that. For weeks. Remember what we talked about? These guys, they were disoriented. Some of the commentaries actually called them depressed. They were confused. They weren't quite sure what to do next. And some of this wasn't just a matter of Jesus has died on the cross. This was after their friends were meeting Christ, resurrected. This was after some of them met Christ, resurrected. Remember, you got... got, Thomas, who's not there one week when these events are happening and Christ has shown up, he's resurrected, but all of his friends and all the disciples and people he's walked with, they've seen Christ resurrected, and he stands there and says, I will not believe. I won't believe unless I put my hand in, it, in his hands, and in the saw it. I'm not going to believe. So there's this doubt that's in them. Remember, we find them weeks later. They're in Galilee. They're a long way away. They're a hundred miles plus away from Jerusalem, and they're hanging out in Galilee. They're not holding a revival meeting there. They're fishing. One morning, they're out fishing. And the, and the setting seems so somber. Jesus shows up on the beach while they're out in the boat. And they're surprised by him being there. And then Peter jumps in the boat, swims to the shore. They all sit down and have breakfast. And Jesus asks Peter this question Peter, do you love me more than these? Remember, I, I'm convinced the these is the fish. These guys have gone back to fishing. They were fishermen. They've gone back to fishing. It seems as though they've lost steering current in their lives. You know, when you read the gospel accounts, you don't find any significant ministry taking place from the resurrection until the day of Pentecost. There's no evangelistic meetings taking place. I mean, you think at bare minimum, because later on during that 50-day period, they're going to get some instruction from Jesus where he turns around and he says, go and wait in Jerusalem. All right, well, at that point, I need to go wait in Jerusalem. I need to stop wandering around. But up until that point, why aren't they running through the countrysides, getting a hold of all the disciples that they knew Jesus visited with from town to town, the little group that was in this town, the one over here in this town, and they run to them all and they say, Jesus is alive, and they start proclaiming the resurrection everywhere that they go. No, no, they're way up in Galilee fishing. Jesus doesn't have to come interrupt a meeting that they're having. It's as though there's some dysfunctional element to their Christianity in this moment. And that captured my attention. Most of us would have thought meeting the resurrected Christ, wow, that had changed your attitude. The Jesus whom you came to love and invest your life in has been crucified and you're confused, but now he's resurrected and it's all clear, right? Apparently not. That's not what happened. Here's a thought-provoking statement. Knowledge of Jesus Christ's birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection is not enough. That's a mouthful. That's a lot of stuff that's very, very critical and important. But apparently, it's not enough. I mean... Even from Jesus' perspective, not just from these disoriented disciples, but from Jesus' perspective. Remember what he tells his disciples? Even after all this has happened, he tells them, go and wait. Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. Go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father from which, of which I told you. In other words, it's not enough. Disciples, it's not enough that you have made this huge decision to leave everything in your life. And come follow me. That's not enough. It's not enough that you've spent the last three years of your life being personally tutored by me, the Son of God, walking with me, watching me minister, listening to me confound the wisdom of men and challenge Pharisees and raise people from the dead and do ministry and pray. That's not enough. It's not even enough that you have met me as a resurrected God. You need to wait in Jerusalem. Gordon Fee says, Christ has made the new covenant effective for the people of God through his death and resurrection. But the Spirit is the key to the new covenant as a fulfilled reality in the lives of God's people. And you understand from, from resurrection to Pentecost, there's no work of Christ that needs to get done, it is finished was the voice of Jesus on the cross. And his ascension declared, God has accepted this sacrifice. The work of the new covenant is done. But yet, they're still being told to wait for something else very significant. I would say that if the resurrection was the epicenter of the earthquake of all history, then the shock waves of that earthquake didn't get felt until Acts chapter 2. Amen. Something weird happened. I mean, on the afternoon that Jesus was crucified, it's like in that moment, deep into the earth as you would, there was a... And it... Everybody stopped for a moment. And all the universe and in all of glory probably went, what was that? Remember, in the the clouds that got dark in the middle of the day like nighttime. But I don't think that made its way to the surface, to where it really started to shake the earth, until Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is quite the beginning of an event. What an effect. What an effect on the disciples. Do you remember how different they become? It talks about... Uh, the, the Bible prophesies that if you strike down the shepherd, you will scatter the sheep. Well, when, they, when the shepherd got st- struck down, the sheep scattered. They went everywhere, into hiding, scared, confused, doubting. But yet from Acts chapter 2 on, you find them hiding no more. You find them in public. You find them proclaiming things. You find them putting their lives on the line. You find them beginning to get martyred. They have a totally different mindset Peter probably is the loudest example of that. Remember the effect on Peter? Here's Peter, has been discipled by Christ. He's received some revelation from the Father. You are the Christ, the Son of the Most High. Jesus' flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. But yet when Jesus is about to be taken away and tried and crucified, and they come to Peter and say, weren't you with this Jesus, remember? He vehemently, cursing, denies, I don't even know him! Big chicken, scared to death. And then Acts chapter 2 comes along. And, and historically, Pentecost would have actually been a, a more attended feast than Passover was. It was easier to travel during that time. So the crowds would have been even bigger at Pentecost in Jerusalem than it was at Passover. And here this same man who was scared to death to answer some little servant girl who was challenging who he was, stands up with a crowd of thousands and proclaims the gospel about Jesus Christ. What happened to this guy? We well, you know, I've heard some people, commentators, accredit that to a post-resurrection Peter. Like, well, the resurrection's occurred now. Mm, I don't think so. Because the post-resurrection pre-Pentecost Peter is having to be asked the question, do you love me more than these? I don't think Peter's got his head screwed on right until Acts chapter 2. What happened to this guy? Pentecost happened to this guy. It wasn't just a revelation of, of the resurrection, he was still confused until the Holy Spirit came to his life and connected all the wires. And all of a sudden, what was in his mind that was confusing, it begins to make sense and there's power in his life and he starts living differently, radically differently. Look at the effect that Pentecost had on the world. From Acts chapter 2 on, it's like this reverberation of this earthquake begins to spread out across the earth. I mean, by the end of years, the first century, 100 A.D., you have Christianity that has spread from this little bitty group of people. You've got a bunch of hundred and something folks hiding out in an upper room, and the Holy Spirit comes, and from their lives spreads Christianity. If you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea, from northern Africa all the way around to Rome, some 2,300 miles, is covered with Christianity. By the end of the first century, How do you explain that? How do you you explain that by 300 A.D., Christianity has gone all the way to Britain and it's beginning to fill Europe? How How do you explain Christianity going around the world with European colonization? How do you explain today the millions of Chinese who are coming to Christ at radical paces? How do you explain that? Well, I think Pentecost explains it. Now, I want to say this carefully. I don't just think the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ explain it. I think Pentecost explains why this has happened. Now, what is this event called Pentecost? Well, let's back up a moment into its origins. If we look back in the Old Testament, Pentecost, because if I were to ask you, where does the word Pentecost come from? Where do you get that? Well, um, I've heard of Pentecostal. You know, it's kind of the, I don't know, it probably started back 80, 100 years ago, maybe, a bunch of folks who kind of got into the spirit and stuff, and they wore their hair up in hair buns and drove old cars and dressed real conservative. That's Pentecostal. They spoke in tongues and stuff like that. Um, But some of us might be surprised to learn that Pentecost is actually a biblical reference point. It's not something that in our lifetime or recent history got created by the people of God, Pentecost was created by God. It was created by God in the context of the festivals of the Old Testament, and I, I love these festivals because, again, I always need to come back to the point that God's not following anybody else's script. So when God creates stuff, He does it for a reason. It's not as though God came along and, and He says, "Look, you know, the God who was here before me, He used to do these festival things. You know, it's Passovers, so we're going to do those too." Now, there was no festivals until God comes along and says I want you to have these festivals and they serve particular purposes and they communicated particular things God invented them out of the blue right? the Passover celebration that, that was a, a, a feast that God had created they celebrated it each year on the 14th of the month of Nisan which is kind of a March-April time of year and remember the origins of Passover. Passover has its origins back in Egypt when God is rescuing the people out of his judgment upon the land. And he tells them, if you'll take a lamb, spotless and blameless lamb, and you'll take its life and spill its blood and then smear the blood over the doorposts of the house, then rather than bringing judgment upon you, which you deserve, Israelites, you deserve it as much as the Egyptians deserve it, rather than bring judgment on you, I'm going to pass over you and i will not bring judgment upon you the blood of the lamb will have covered atoned for your sins well you know obviously for us we those are rich words aren't they now for them they didn't quite get all that this was about to mean but over the practice of that for years and years and years as god required them every year you have this meal and you celebrate and you remember the passover I think it's that celebration that serves kind of as a road sign that you pass that every year. Every year, it's pointing to something. It's not only reminding you of something, but it's pointing to something. And it pointed to the day that Jesus would come on the scene. Remember, John the Baptist looks up at him and he sees, Behold, the Lamb of God. You know, oh, that's what all this Passover stuff is about. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, when you've been celebrating Passover for all these years, it kind of makes it easy for you to get it when he comes. It was a a sign on the highway. It wasn't the reality. It was a sign on the highway. Well, right after Passover, the next celebration, just two days later, the 16th of Nisan, was First Fruits. This was during the the harvest season, and a lot of all these uh, festivals were around the harvest that like God was providing in God's people's lives. Well, the first fruits, they would go out just as the barley began to ripen. It wasn't all ripe yet, but it was going to ripen over the next several weeks. They would, they would harvest the first sheath of that, and they would present it before God in anticipation of all the harvest that was to come. And it was an acknowledgment of faith, saying, God, you have provided the first fruits. You will provide the rest as well. And we celebrate that. And it was a party, These festivals were a celebration and a party. Well, we know that every year they did that, and it was a road sign. When we come to the New Testament, we find the fulfillment of that road sign, that Jesus Christ himself is the first fruits. Remember, he's the firstborn from the dead of the many that God would harvest. The Lord of the harvest would harvest many souls. You and I are the continuation of that harvest. Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren, the Bible says. And you and I today are still living in the reaping of that harvest, even to today. Well, right after that, 50 days later after First Fruits, comes Pentecost, this Old Testament festival that God created. Now, let me just read you this quote here by Alan Ross, because I think it's an interesting angle on Pentecost. In the sequence of events, the first barley sheaf was brought to the sanctuary just after Passover. 49 days later, the last cereal crop, wheat, ripened. So barley ripened first, and then some 50 days later, the wheat now begins to ripen. But now the Israelites had to bring loaves of bread made from the wheat. When God said, now you're going to bring an offering for Pentecost, it's not going to be a sheaf that you cut from the land. It's actually going to be a loaf that you made from the sheaf that you cut. This festival, listen carefully, this festival celebrated what the harvests produced, or more precisely, what the Lord had produced for them. This, This is how I would frame this. As a result of first fruits, something has become possible at Pentecost, now, we understand this as we back away into the New Testament. We understand this more fully. But the picture God was giving, that was as a result of the harvest, the first fruits, which Jesus would become the first fruits. Something has become possible for us. Now, what I want to do today is I want to do what, what, what the festival was intended to do. In the Old Testament, God prescribed these festivals... Because there were points in which everybody was together. There were three main festivals throughout the year that everyone was required to come to Jerusalem for. Now, there were rare exceptions that you didn't have to come. But God intended to gather everyone together to do two things. To kind of make them all read the sign together and to remember. Now, I find that very significant. This This is why I find it significant today. Apparently, we as people need to be reminded of certain things. That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Many of us have forgotten some very significant facts in our lives. Well, what happens when you forget very significant facts of what God has done? Well, you begin to live like they didn't happen. Right? The Passover caused people every year to remember the God of deliverance, the God who set us free, the God who forgives us because of the blood. Every year when they celebrated, they had to remember that. Well, Pentecost was a required festival that they were all to show up for. Listen, today I want us to be required in a good way to remember the day of Pentecost and what it means for us today. Let's freshly read the signpost so that we don't go about living our lives like Pentecost didn't happen. It did happen. And we should be living our lives like it happened. Now let's move into Acts chapter 2 here. And let's look at the fulfillment of Pentecost. Remember, God does things on purpose. He has told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father, the giving of the Spirit, has taken place. Now the giving of the Spirit could have been any day, right? God just decides, you know, I'm in a good mood today. As though God ever was in a bad mood. I'm in a good mood today. I think I'm just going to pour out my spirit on man today. Today's the day. No, that's not what he did. God chooses Pentecost to be the day. This day of an existing festival that was a signpost. This is the day that he chooses to pour out his spirit. Look in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together together. In one place, and suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seating, sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. In other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then the, the scene moves outdoor after that. But let me just pick up on some of the imagery that's here. There's, a, there's an image of, of wind here, there's the image of fire here, and then they're speaking in tongues. Those would be the three significant ingredients that remember God chose to manifest on the day that he created that was special. It's very important that you see that. These guys weren't sitting, they weren't sitting in the upper room. Remember, these guys, they're a bit confused, they're a bit disoriented, they've just been given instruction, wait in Jerusalem. It's not just saying, okay, listen, when Pentecost comes, how about we all speak in tongues? Yeah, okay, that sounds good. How about we, and then we'll create some wind, we'll open the windows, I don't know, we'll create wind. This is not, these guys are taken off guard. It's Pentecost. They don't don't necessarily connect all these things, but all of a sudden there begins to be this sound like a wind blowing in the room where they are. And all of a sudden there's these tongues of fire begin to set upon each person in the room. And then they begin to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to experience God, and they begin to speak in tongues, and they move outside into the streets And they look like a bunch of drunks. I mean, can you imagine? They're not walking outside, you know, they're not afraid. There's something really exciting going on. So they don't walk out in the street kind of like, you know. There's something really exciting happening in their life. And so there's smiles on their faces as they walk out into the street and they speak in languages that they've never spoken before. And so the people assume these guys are a bunch of drunks, man. Look at these guys. Check this out. They're all coming out out of that saloon over there, I think. Uh, Well, what was happening for them that God had already planted some roadmaps for? Well, the wind, first of all. They would have known something about the wind. See, in the Old Testament, the word for spirit is the same word for breath and for wind. Ruah. It's the same word. So when that wind began to blow, they, they had many biblical references to know that the presence of the Spirit, the move of the Spirit, is like the breath of God. God breathed his life into Adam. All throughout Scripture, there's depictions of of the wind of God blowing. Look, in Ezekiel 37, I'll put this passage in your outline. Remember remember this, this picture? This is a great picture here, right? Ezekiel comes to this valley. It's filled with dry bones, just a big valley of dead bones. And the question that God brings to Ezekiel can these bones live? They're death. Right? This is humanity in the valley. Can these bones live? Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know the answer to that. And God begins to tell Ezekiel to prophesy. And when he begins to prophesy, the bones begin to assemble into, into human beings and flesh and muscle begin to get formed on these bones and they begin to, to take on life. There's this animation from this breath of God. Look in verse 10 in that passage it says so i prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them that's the ruah and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army that's an interesting picture not just a collection not a big country club outing an army god blew breath into a people and made them into an army it's an interesting language then in verse 14 it says God says, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Right? Ezekiel, what I just showed you in this valley was the animation of the spirit of God. When God comes by the spirit, he takes that which is dead and he brings it to life and he animates and he says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. Again, this is Ezekiel pointing to a day that has yet to come in Ezekiel's life. In, in, in Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 19, we find places where fire meant something in the Old Testament. When Moses saw the fire burning on the side of the mountain, it was the presence of God that was accompanied by fire. When God showed up at Mount Sinai and, and gave the giving, the giving of the law, this presence was like a fire on the mountain. And then when they made the tabernacle, remember the cloud by day? I think you can put this passage in your outline, Exodus 40. It says, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel. Now, what's significant about this passage is in the Old Testament, the fire was in one place, wasn't it? It was wherever the presence of God was. When the presence of God was on the mountain, the fire was on the mountain. When they made the tabernacle and the presence of God showed up, the fire was in the tabernacle. Well, what do you think it means when you're sitting in this upper room and the fire distributes to each one individually. What is God trying to say there? My presence is now in each one of you. It's not on a mountain. It's not in a tabernacle somewhere. My presence is now in each one of you. The spirit is moved by the wind and the fire has come. And then they speak in tongues. Now what's interesting about that is that you really have no Old Testament reference for that. There isn't an Old Testament practice that would have made them aware we're going to speak in tongues next. There isn't a, a scripture that clearly spells out this event. But what this does, and what I needed to do, this, that's, that's an unusual event for these guys. They, they've not experienced that before. And, and we bring, unfortunately, and I'll talk about this in the end, we bring some baggage to that expression. But if we could get rid of our baggage and just take the event for what it is, what's going on there that on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, they're going to speak in tongues? Well, I think that's simply pointing to the realm of the Spirit's work in gifting, that what you have now entered into is the realm of the work of the Spirit in giving you supernatural abilities to further the kingdom of God. And they go out into the street, and this gifting, this enablement, this ability that was not natural. It's not as though, oh, yeah, you know, the Lord was bringing to mind. I had studied our Armenian when I was in school, and I was remembering it all real fast. They were speaking languages that they had no idea how to speak. It was an ability beyond their own. They went out into the street, and ministry into the world began to take place. So I think these three elements are god showing forth something about what Pentecost was supposed to be and what it meant on this first day. But skip down to verse 14. They've gone out into the street, and these folks are asking questions. What on earth is this about? And Peter's going to have to explain Pentecost to these guys. In verse 14 he says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. This, this is that. You want, you want to understand what's going on right here, guys? Let me explain this event to you. This is that. This is what Joel talked about. And Listen to how he quotes Joel now. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now what's interesting here is when Peter stands before a Jewish audience and says, this is that, he's referencing something that all of them should have known. How sad it is that God leads road sign, After road sign, after road sign, after road sign. And then he moves just the way he had been saying he was going to move all the time. And the people of God stare at it and don't see it. This is an outbreak of God right here. No one gets it. And that should sober us. Because that informs me. I'm quite capable of knowing a lot about God and then missing God. That's what these guys did. They knew a lot about God. He's quoting Joel. It's not like they're saying, wait, not, I've never heard of Joel. Who's this Joel guy? They all know who Joel is. He's an Old Testament prophet. They knew good and well what he was quoting. They just didn't understand what God was doing. You know, but it's not as though no, Joel's this obscure, oh, that's an obscure Joel passage. Everybody pulls that Joel thing out. All over the Old Testament, God was pointing to the day of Pentecost. All over the Old Testament. i just give you a couple quick little moments here. Isaiah 44, verse 3. Prophet Isaiah says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Listen, in the Old Testament, they did not experience this pouring out. They experienced Sprinkles. Not as though the the Holy Spirit wasn't in the Old Testament, but he sprinkled here, sprinkled there. Wouldn't be seen or heard of for quite a while. Sprinkled here, sprinkled there. Used this guy marvelously, but everybody around him knew nothing of the experience he was having. And then you get to Pentecost, and these guys, even Isaiah, who's 750 years before Pentecost, is speaking of a day when the Spirit will be poured out. Ezekiel 39. I will not hide my face from... From them any longer, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Look what Jeremiah says about this day. He says, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Remember the the Bible talks about getting rid of the, the heart of stone? And here it talks about writing on our hearts. Well, Jewish tradition is not spelled out in the Bible, but I think it's probably accurate. Jewish tradition taught that Pentecost was the day that the Lord gave the, the, the law on Mount Sinai. Remember, they left, they left Egypt at Passover, and they leave, and it takes them 50 days to get to Sinai when the law is being given. And Ezekiel turns around and says, you know, back then, as a shadow God wrote his law on tablets of stone, but there 's coming a day when he 's going to write it on your hearts. Do you see the difference here? Do you see what Pentecost was pointing to this day when the spirit would come into the, to dwell in the believer 's heart with profound power and influence? John the Baptist anticipated it matthew three eleven He says, "I baptize you with water for repentance, but he was coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals i 'm not worthy to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, John the Baptist saw the day of Pentecost. He saw the fire of God coming into their lives. Jesus anticipated this day in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, right? I mean, the resurrection's occurred, as great as that is. Wouldn't you just expect Jesus to say, Okay, guys, it's done. It's done. I've done everything I needed to do. It's done. You guys have been trained by me for three years. Get after it. Go on. He says, no, wait in Jerusalem. And look what he says in that context. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he had said, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Listen, I don't have enough time to pull out all the Bible passages that talk about this day. There are tons of them. God created some event called Pentecost because he intended on that day to visit his people in a unique, powerful way. Now, what's amazing is how much the scriptures anticipate that and when it happens, no one gets it. That better capture our attention. Because I'm pretty sure that Acts chapter 2, in the same way that it was happening in the Old Testament, Acts chapter 2 can happen today for the Christian, and you and I not notice it. Not be looking for it. Maybe even contending with it in some ways. Rather than anticipating it in our lives and looking for it. I wrote this out in your outline. Pentecost Sunday was the inauguration of God's supernatural presence in the person of the Holy Spirit, filling and indwelling the Christian in order to produce a supernatural life, a life that could only be possible by giving us abilities beyond our own. That's what Pentecost started. It inaugurated that. Pentecost reaches into our life even today and it gives us supernatural components about who we are. We don't just simply live our lives assessing who we are by our natural talents, our natural abilities, how circumstances are going, how much money I have in the bank, what I can pull off, what my track record has been up to this point, how influential I am over here. Everything that's natural about me, should I do that next? A Christian has to add in the wild card. Pentecost brought something to your life that changes everything about you. See, Pentecost is not just an event in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is the inauguration of an ongoing event that's still happening today. See, when you make Pentecost a day on a calendar and you actually like it's a historic thing that happened once, it was the beginning of something. It was the inauguration of something. See, Joel's prophecy spoke of a time frame The last days, so we are now in the last days, because the last days began, really when Jesus was resurrected, the last days began, but most clearly on the day of Pentecost, because Peter stands up and he says, this is that. Well, what did Joel say? In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, So we're living in the day that God is still pouring out His Spirit. And so the same way in which Pentecost revolutionized the lives of disciples back then, it ought to be revolutionizing our lives right now. And let me broaden this out. I'm going to try and go through this kind of quickly here. What in our lives is touched by Pentecost? I want to carefully, I want to draw our attention again. Pentecost has its own expression, its own boundaries. It's causing us to think in a particular category. I think we can become, in a good way, the way in which we should, honoring of, you know, whether it's the incarnation and we go through the nativity calendar and we do little stuff around, you know, we have the cross and we draw so much attention to the cross and what was accomplished at the cross. All of that and all that there is about God becomes real to me as an individual through Pentecost. It's almost as though I can amass a library that's not downloaded into me. But Pentecost downloads it into me. It takes all these incredible facts, all the amazement about the love of God and the justice of God and the perfectness of God and what was displayed at the cross. It takes all that and it downloads it into me. That tongue of fire comes. The presence of God comes to me as an individual. So, that I'm not just entertaining religious concepts. Something has come to me from Pentecost on. Well, what are some of those things? Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts have come to me. I define spiritual gifts as spiritual enablement that is intended to strengthen the body, equip the body, and build the kingdom of God through the witness of the church. Spiritual gifts. Pentecost brought spiritual gifts, divine enablement. Um, Pentecost lets us cheat in a fallen world. That makes sense. See, when I when I go to share the gospel with somebody, it's not my human reasoning and intellect versus your human reasoning and intellect. And, and if I can corny and I got better arguments than you and I can talk faster, then you'll get saved. No, no. The Holy Spirit. Helps me to cheat, in a way. See, because now ministry is my weakness, ramped up by the power of God. So where I just share words, they come out of my life, and, out of my mouth, and well, they're just vocabulary, they're just sentence structure sitting in my head. My vocal cords vibrate, and the sound comes out. But when the sound comes out, the Holy Spirit touches them and grabs them, and now and sticks them on you, in a way that I couldn't have made that happen. See, this, this should inform us, because most of us are scared to death to say anything to anybody. Because we don't think it'll work, you know. I tried to talk to my so-and-so, and eh, eh, eh. well, that you know what that is? It gives away the fact that we don't believe God's at work in it. And it's a denial of Pentecost. Because what came with Pentecost was spiritual gifts, the whole realm of the effecting of miracles and the gifts of faith and administration and helps and prophesying and speaking in tongues and the gift of evangelism. All this is in the age of Joel being poured out on the church, you and me. Spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, that is the manifestation of the character of the Spirit who is now present in us. Pentecost went from sprinkle to pouring out. What got poured out on us? Love, joy, joy. Peace. I mean, we're talking gushes. You're standing at Niagara Falls. Patience, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control is coming by the Spirit into my life because of Pentecost. Now, boy, this has to compete with a lot, doesn't it, in us? Because this is the character of the Holy Spirit who is now in us. But, but most of us are more aware, really, of what we're like than we are about what the Holy Spirit's like, right? I mean, we, we have certain natural tendencies. Well, you know, you get us kind of saying, I've just never been a patient person, you understand? That's just not me. You know, uh, I'm... I'm half Ukrainian and, and half Alaskan, you know, so I'm like cold-shouldered and yell at you at the same time. So we come up like, what, like we're mutts or something, you know. Like I'm, I'm part chihuahua, I'm part pit bulls, which means I, I bark a lot and chew on you a little. That's it's just who I am, and we bring all that stuff, and it's, or it's the way I was raised, or, all, you know, it's just... What about the Holy Spirit? What about Pentecost? What about God pouring something out of my life so that I don't have to be me anymore? Well, that's easy for you because you're just naturally that way, and I'm naturally this way. Well, you know what, what's happened at Pentecost. Here's the post-Pentecost Christian. Post-Pentecost Christian normal no longer equals natural for the post-Pentecost Christian. What is normal for you and me no longer equals what comes natural for me because something supernatural came in an outpouring that messed all that up. And no one in this room should walk around comfortable with the idea, well, I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, my mom would bite your head off in a second, you know, I just I got her jeans, and, you know, I'm just loud, I'm just outspoken, you know, and something comes, I'm just one of those people, because you're just going to hear from me. Oh, can I explain that biblically to you? You're one of those people who has negated Pentecost and you don't have any self-control. Oh, that's who you are. I recognize you. You're a fleshly Christian. That's real nice to say, right? But that's the truth. I'm just impatient. Oh, okay, Pentecost was nothing to you. Good good thing we're having this day, just to remind all of us that there was an event called Pentecost. It was significant. It was huge. It rattled the world. It's changed the environment of the world that we live in. And individually, it's come to us. The tongues of fire set on every one of us. And if I'm having a problem with patience, the Holy Spirit is in me. That can change. It doesn't have to be the case anymore in my life because of Pentecost. About revelation, the Holy Spirit leads us into the truth. You go back and look in John, several places we'll get to as we study through John, where the Spirit leads us into the truth. The Spirit takes the truths of Jesus and reveals them to us. Now, How many Christians today have set aside Pentecost and are walking around saying, well, you know, I just don't like to read and, you know, I don't know, I read the Bible and I just don't get anything. Listen, the only way, the only way you can say that as a Christian is to set aside Pentecost. Only way you can say that. Because the Spirit is in you to lead you into the truth. Now, what if you don't believe that? Then you won't benefit from it. What if if you forget about Pentecost? What if you're just not aware that the prophecy of Joel means that we live in the age of the outpouring of the Spirit and that God could right now lead you into the truth? In whatever situation he needs to do that, God could reveal the Bible to you. Well, you know, I've never liked to read, and, you know, I had some problems in grammar school, and okay, that's fine. Appreciate your story. I'm telling you about an event that happened. It's an event called Pentecost, and the Spirit of God got poured out, and He's the Spirit who leads you in all the truth. Now, don't tell me your reading problem is bigger than the Spirit of God. Don't do that. Right? We don't have to believe something here. What about boldness? Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Into all the world you're going to go and witness. Boy, that's boldness. The Holy Spirit came on these guys. They went from hiding out to shouting out. They went to minister. They went all over the place. They abandoned their lives. They traveled all over the world. Stephen offers his life, right? Stephen proclaims Jesus from the Old Testament and they stone him to death. I think in that moment... The Apostle Paul got his screws turned by God. The Apostle Paul, who we've come to be so grateful that that man ever got converted and God used him so mightily. Probably the greatest impact on his conversion prior to meeting Christ was watching Stephen look up into heaven and see the glory of God. How'd that guy do that? How was he so bold and courageous? Holy Spirit. Stephen's probably one of those guys hiding somewhere before Pentecost. He's different because of Pentecost. If you look back in the Old Testament, even in Exodus chapter 31, you find that God gave his spirit in limited measure for the purpose of enabling skills in people. When they went to build the tabernacle, God filled a few of them with the spirit so that they could build the tabernacle. They could actually construct and have skills in working with their hands. J. Rodman Williams says, It is evident that the spirit of God is largely depicted as the spirit of enablement. The spirit's activity was that of endowing an artisan, a judge, a king, a prophet, or a priest to perform certain functions or tasks. Whatever the individual's natural abilities and capacities, the endowment of the spirit is shown to be something additional, hence supernatural. And it is by virtue of this special endowment that the person involved was enabled to fulfill a certain task or vocation. Question, do you anticipate that in your life? We're celebrating Mother's Day today. Mothers, mothers. You would be a normal mother if on about a daily basis you felt like your job was too big for you. That would be normal. For at least on a daily basis for you to feel like I can't Do this. But something happened at Pentecost that so benefits you. Listen, this is true here, whether you're a mother or whether you're uh, somebody applying for a job, you're being called upon to do something that just seems to be beyond you. Where is the mindset for us that Pentecost brought something to me, this spiritual endowment that enables me to do things that on my own, I couldn't do. See, the, the people of God ought to be doing some crazy stuff. Because we believe the power of God is with us in a particular way because it's what the Bible teaches us. Experiencing the presence of God. That picture of the, the Holy Spirit's individual presence in the, in the lives of the Christian. First Corinthians 3. Do you, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Listen, don't ever get satisfied being a Christian. And not experiencing the presence of God. Don't don't settle for that kind of Christianity where we just, you know, we don't have a sense of the nearness of God ever. Now listen, you can't you can't necessarily control when you have the presence of God to be manifest to you in a certain way. But you should never begin to believe that Christianity is not about experiencing the presence of God. It absolutely is about experiencing the supernaturalness of God. Liberty and freedom. You know, how how do you get free in your life? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, are beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed or transformed from one degree of glory to another. What comes into our lives as Christians to challenge Pentecost in this category is the things that enslave us. The stuff that uniquely has been in your life too long, trafficking, it's got a leash on you, and you don't get to go too far from it. Whether it's your anger, you know, man, I just can't seem to break free from this thing, or pornography, some drug or alcohol problem. Gambling folks, spoke with somebody recently with a gambling issue. Just, it's just controlling. It comes into your life, and there's something in you that just kind of just, oh, surrendering, cave in. Oh, it's like, I just don't feel like I can overcome that thing. Okay, hold that sense of reality up against Pentecost. Because the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's not just an idea of freedom. We just don't hope one day to be liberated from these bodies. If the Spirit's there, there's freedom right now. And not trickle-sprinkle freedom. Outpouring of God freedom in our lives. So listen, we do a disservice... To Pentecost. Not only do we not preach on Pentecost Sunday enough and remind ourselves, but we don't regularly remind ourselves that the the tide of life has changed. The definition of who I am has changed. There's a significant event that's come into my life that's changed me. No matter how threatening or controlling something from the past or a habit's been in my life, I have bigger news than that in my life the presence of the power of God. In the age of being a post Pentecost Christian. Listen, I'm not some Old Testament believer who believed all the great things that you and I believe, but I don't have any power to f- pull it off. That's, that's not a post Pentecost Christian. Very concerned there's way too many folks running around that way. Gordon Fee says the bottom line is a generally ineffective witness and perceived irrelevancy of the church in Western culture. Here it seems to me is where the real difference between Paul and us emerges where in a culture similar to ours, the early believers seem to have been more effective than we are. I'm convinced this is due in large part to their experience of the reality of the Spirit's presence. The Spirit, as an experienced reality for Paul and his churches, was the key player in all of Christian life from beginning to end. The Spirit covered the whole waterfront, power for life, growth, fruit, gifts, prayer, witness, and everything else. Now, let me make this statement here. It's a very interesting exegete that that Peter does about Joel's passage. This is that. He looks at Pentecost, he watches this outbreak happen, and he explains it to the people, and he preaches from the Old Testament. He says, this is that. Now, when he said that, he did not mean this is exactly and only that. This is where I think some folks mess up the power of Pentecost in their lives. He didn't say this is this is that and exactly and only that. He said this is that. This is what Joel was talking about. Now listen to what he quotes. He so says, when the spirit gets outpoured, people are going to prophesy, they're going to see visions, they're going to have dreams. Now, a question for you, just in those few. There's going to be signs right in the sky and signs upon the earth. Did any of those things happen in Acts chapter 2? Up until this moment. No one prophesied. They spoke in tongues. They didn't prophesy. No one walked out and said, I've had a vision. No one woke up and said, I had a dream. But yet Peter said, this is that. This is that. Listen, when you and I benefit from Pentecost and we bring it into the realities of our lives, it it is the phenomena of the outpouring of the Spirit that runs the gamut that Joel was describing. He wasn't trying to just say, oh, well, you didn't prophesy. No, 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 it wasn't Pentecost. No, sorry, Peter, nice try. They spoke in tongues. They didn't prophesy. Nobody had dreams. You know, I can still see the sky. It didn't turn dark. You know, you're wrong. No, he was absolutely right. The pouring out of the Spirit was going to go into a realm of activity that was going to be supernaturally empowered in the lives of Christians. Let me me just walk through a couple of quick things here before we finish. The potential paralysis of Pentecost. I think we paralyze Pentecost by a lack of awareness. Just not aware, just biblically uninformed. We're like the crowd. God begins to move, and we're standing in the bleachers unaware, not recognizing it, not catching what God's doing. We're those, quote, disciples in Acts chapter 19 who get asked the question Have you received the Spirit since you believed? Spirit? What's the Spirit? Never even heard of the Spirit. Now, I don't know what they were walking out as disciples, whatever that was for them. But they're just like the guys in Acts chapter 8 who also later experienced the Spirit. But they had clearly believed and understood the gospel. But the Spirit comes later in a way into their lives. Listen, you can apparently be a Christian and be unaware that you live in the era of a post Pentecost experience where the Spirit is still to be poured out. It wasn't just a day for the guys in the upper room, it was for Christians from now on until Jesus comes back. That should be what we're anticipating. Wayne Grudem says, we must realize, we must realize that the day of Pentecost is much more than an individual event in the lives of Jesus' disciples. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition from the old covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Of course the Holy Spirit was at work throughout the Old Testament, but during that time the work of the Holy Spirit in, in individual lives was in general a work of lesser power. The day of Pentecost Was a remarkable day in the history of the world because on that day the Holy Spirit began to function among God's people with new covenant power. You know, some of the things, I think this is a categorical problem. People come to God and impose upon Him that God, because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, doesn't ever do anything different. So, God's got to do the same thing in the Old Testament as He does in the New Testament. What if God intentionally said, you know what, I'm going to function with two ounces of power in the old Old Covenant? and then I'm going to drown people in the New Covenant. That's just what I choose to do. Oh, no, God can't do that. Well, that's exactly what he did. When you look at people in the Old Testament, they were not individually experiencing tongues of fire. They had to go to the temple to experience the presence of God. They had to go to the mountain to do that. Well, now the presence of God has come here. That's a New Covenant issue. That's a Pentecost on issue. Evangelism, you know, just sharing people's faith. You know, I... It's very arguable to say Israel was not very good evangelistically. This did not have a great influence on the world around them. But yet now there's an evangelism in the spirit of God that is in the people of God that is different than it was in the Old Testament. Show me anybody in the Old Testament casting out any demons. Isn't that interesting? In the entire Old Testament, I don't think there's one person who casts out a demon. The closest we come, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, is David playing the harp to kind of settle down the demon issues in Saul's life. But you come to the New Testament and it's like, cast them out, speak to them, tear them down. It's a whole different day now in this realm because the new covenant power of the Spirit is a different day. Post Pentecost Christianity is not the Old Testament dressed up with some Jesus information in it. It's a different day. Listen, I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned that too many people. Take good ideas of Christianity and do their best to live them out in their own strength and their own power. That's what the people in the old covenant did. It's not post-Pentecost. Christians shouldn't do that. But you know, if I were to look around, quotes, and I think I put this in your outline, how many disciples today are looking like they're living post-resurrection lives, but not post-Pentecost lives? And we're excited. We heard that the resurrection happened and we believe that. But, they lack joy, lack self-control, they lack peace. See, those are Pentecost issues. They lack power to change in their own lives. They lack power to minister to others and see the kingdoms of darkness collapse in their lives. They, they lack radical faith, risk-taking faith in their lives. See, those are all Pentecost issues. You can live and believe in the resurrection and the life of Jesus and everything that he taught and not walk in the power of God. It be tragic, but it's true. Go ahead and come up. I think we can paralyze Pentecost by overnarrowing the work of the Holy Spirit. I say this to those of us who have been around Pentecostalism and charismatic world. You know, we can become those who say, No, 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 the move of the Spirit is speaking in tongues and prophesying. It's speaking in tongues and prophesying. That's the move of the Spirit. Well, then we would have had a hard time with Peter exegeting Joel. The move of the Spirit is bigger than that. But you can't deny the fact that God chose to inaugurate the move of the Spirit by having people speak in tongues. They could have done anything. Do you understand? They could have done anything. They could have walked out into the crowd and put hands on everybody and healed everybody who was sick. They could have done anything. God had them speak in tongues. So it is significant that they spoke in tongues. Because it opens up to us the realm of the different. The realm, I don't want to say the realm of the bizarre, because it's only bizarre to us when we think naturally. But the realm of the outside of the natural and the predictable, the Holy Spirit comes, and you better be ready to color outside your lines. Gifting will do that to you. The last thing I think that paralyzes Pentecost is entertaining a biblically uninformed bias. Entertaining a biblically uninformed bias about it. And this is what I mean by that. Being against something for reasons that aren't founded in the Bible, but rather are founded in human abuses. Listen, this is a bad way of thinking. I know that there's probably folks here today who come from a position theologically that entertaining ideas about Pentecost, spiritual giftings, is an awkward thing for you. Probably more based in the abuses that you have seen rather than in Bible verses that you can explain. That's not how you handle the Bible. Don't ever do that to the Bible. Don't do it in this category. Don't do it in any other. Let me just tell you, if you're doing it in this category and I were to say, okay, if we're going to live that way, let's do it in all categories. Let's start with marriage. Anybody ever seen any abuses in marriage? Just curious. Everybody think marriage is being done right today? Marriage is so screwed up in this world today, even in the church. Should we just do away with it? I mean, it's being abused. It's not being done right. Family. You can do away with family as well. I mean, I know the Bible teaches on family and never teaches against it, but it's, it's just not working today. I mean, children are being abused or being neglected. We should just not have that anymore. Church, for goodness sake, oh, there's power trips, there's corruption, there's people stealing money. People misquoting God and all kinds of trouble in the church. We should just do away with the church, Dave, because it's got problems too. Do you understand? That's not how we handle the Bible. We don't come to the Bible and say people have messed up what's in the Bible, so therefore we stay away from it. No, the Bible needs to tell us to stay away from something before we're going to stay away from it. And I'm sorry, but honestly, I can't find the Bible steering me away from Pentecost, steering me away from the deeper realms of the Spirit. I can't find that. And you know what, if you're really honest here, I don't care what theological spin you come from, everybody in this room, if I were to ask you, do you want more of the move of God in your life? Everybody here, if you're really a Christian, would say yes. Yes, I do. Well, in the realm of the Spirit, no matter where you come from theologically, is there more than what you have? If I could just move some, I'd just like to move you to where you'd at least face the issue of Pentecost. Turn your face toward it. See it for what God had put in place. See that God, in his great joy, created a festival called Passover and longed for the day. Jesus said, "How I've longed to eat this meal with you. Look down the quarter of time when God creates first fruits and says, celebrate this for years, so that in that day, in that day when my son comes up out of the ground and I begin to harvest the world, you understand what I'm doing. Look back over the quarters of time and 50 days later and see that God said, what my son purchased for you on the cross and through the resurrection was the return of the presence of God in your life. Do you understand the passion of God over this issue? It's being debated in the church today. What a sad thing is happening is that the passion of God has been displaced. God could have prophesied through Joel, in the last days I will sprinkle like I've never sprinkled before. But he didn't say that. I will pour out my spirit. Listen, Christians, let's stop being a church who believes in sprinkles. Because if you believe in sprinkles, listen, you'll experience the sprinkled-filled life. Okay? That's what you're going to get. If you're not aware of Pentecost, and I believe there's many here today who may be hearing some things about Pentecost for the first time really. Young in the Lord, young people here. The dimension of the spirit that God is calling you to walk in is like standing in Niagara Falls. It's not a little drop here and there. It's much, much bigger than what we have. Now, if we settle for what we have, we're going to keep on getting what we have. But I don't want to do that. I want to look back. I want to read the fresh signpost of Pentecost as I drive past and go, ah, that's what it's supposed to look like, Lord. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you for the day of Pentecost to remind me that there's much more to the Spirit that I need to be receiving. Let's stand up together. But thank you for a day on a calendar called Pentecost. Thank you for what it meant to you that you'd even invent the idea, a festival, and communicate meaning through that. Thank you for all the ways in which the prophets look for the day when everything about being a follower of God and a believer would change. Thank you that John the Baptist looked forward to that day. He compared his own ministry as though, hey, what I'm doing doesn't nearly compare to what you're about to get from Jesus. Lord, thank you today, Pentecost 2008, that nothing has changed from that Acts chapter 2 day of Pentecost to this one. We are still living in the day that Isaiah saw, and Jeremiah saw, and Ezekiel saw, and Joel saw. We're still in that day, Lord. Still in that day. Lord, help us. Help us this morning in this room to be a people who are not willing to settle for less. Lord, I, don't want to, I don't want less for my life, Lord. I don't want to downgrade Christianity into something that I can manage and control and do in my own power, God. I don't, I don't want to try and defend my lack of experience today. I don't want to try and create theology around the fact that I feel comfortable where I am and, and some of these things I've sought for and I haven't received them in the past so therefore maybe I just don't believe them anymore. God, your word teaches them to us us hearts that want it. Give us hearts this morning that want it. I want to do this this morning. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I, I don't have, I don't know all the details of Pentecost and all that it's supposed to mean, but I know there's more in the spirit from me. I know there's more. If you're here this morning and you, you want more from God, make this real broad and general for you. Cause I believe the, the work of the spirit is a broad work. I believe it can come in gifts. I believe it can come in the fruit of the Spirit. I believe it can enable you mothers to experience the power of God in your life. I believe it can bring liberty into your life. This morning, today, the issue that you've been struggling with, the Spirit of God can come like a flood. And just like these guys who spoke for the first time in another tongue, never having done it before, you can walk free from some issue in your life, never having walked free before in your life. That's what the power of God is like. Well, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I, I know I want more. I want more. I'm going to ask you, and you're going to have to just get all over the place in here. Come up and get it. Come up and tell God, God, I want to receive. I want to open my heart more to you. I'm not satisfied with where I am. I want to live in the area of your spirit being poured out into my life. God, I want more and right now maybe God's bringing to mind some areas of your life where you are needing a move of the Spirit of God. Or maybe it's a a vision that God's given you to be something or minister in a certain way or step out in faith, care for people, begin some new ministry in your life, use an exercise of spiritual gift like you've never done before, and this morning you sense it from God, faith to step up and say, God, empower me for that. Send me from the upper room like these guys. God, maybe I've been confused. I've been disillusioned. I've even been depressed. Bring your spirit into my life. I want to live in this new day, the new day of the spirit, the realm of your spirit, poured out on all flesh. Just begin to ask God. Begin to call out to the Lord. Begin to respond to him as God gives you utterances, prophetic words. Speak them out. Exalt God. Proclaim the goodness of God. Confess God. God gives you an utterance in a language you don't know anything about, speak it before the Lord. Oh, God. Let's begin to just ask God. If you're here just praying for folks, just pray. Just pray.